Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor of Politics and Washington Correspondent at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director here at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, why are we so fat phobic? Happy New Year, Grio fam. Just so you know, while we are so happy to usher in 2022, we did record this show just before ending 2021. Nevertheless, this was an incredible conversation and we can't wait to share it with you. Over the past few years, we've seen a cultural shift in the way we think and talk about weight and our bodies. And even though the body positivity movement has taken off, especially on social media, did you know that it is still legal to fire someone because of their weight in 49 states? As today's featured guest points out, anti-fatness is so much more than harmful words and negative stereotypes. In just a bit, we'll talk with writer and author Deshaun Harrison about their new book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. So, Shauna, I'm I'm really glad we're diving into this topic around fatness and fat phobia. And when I was preparing for this episode, I was thinking about my childhood, about the messages that I received either from the media or from the adults around me about that that kind of like shaped the way I view what it means to be fat. And obviously, I've never been fat. um, And so... I had to really like ground myself. And I don't remember adults in my life like hearing like fat phobic language in my household or in my family per se. There are family members in my, I have family members who are fat. But I do remember as a child, like, you know, when you would stay home from like school and you watch TV and I would watch like Jerry Springer and The Maury Show. And those are obviously very extreme, you know, stories and uh, some of them not so real, actually. But the messaging I got when you I think about like Jerry Springer, where they had like a really thin guy cheats on his desirable wife on like this fat woman. And like the, when you read in between the lines, the message was, was always, how dare this man cheat on his wife with this fat woman? Why, why would he find her attractive? Um, and I think about the classroom where kids always have fat jokes and it was seen as funny. It was seen as uh, this othering of fat people in a way to to shame them for simply existing. And obviously, you know, as an adult, I'm able to look back and recognize how harmful um, those, those messaging, that messaging was. And obviously children learn these things from adults. And I'm glad that in 2021, you know, when we talk about, um, the centering of, of anti-fat uh, phobia language and body positivity, although we can get, we'll get into that in the show about body positivity and, and even that can be misconstrued. But I'm glad we are here. We're, we're kind of reassessing, you know, what is appropriate, what's the appropriate way to talk about, you know, each, uh, talk about society and to investigate the ways in which we belittle people and dehumanize people for how they look, for their sexuality, for their gender, their socioeconomic background. Um, And I want to ask you, Shauna, actually, like, how has these stereotypes and around fatness shaped how you view yourself? Because I know for women, especially, especially black women, um, it has an impact. Uh, Especially for black women who grew up in a Caribbean household. Um, (laughs) Unlike you, I, I have been 
riddled with fat phobic and anti-fat rhetoric my entire life. Um, it's, and, and, and I don't think that my family does it intentionally, you know, per se, but it is, it, it's something, it's weird. And it's, it's particularly the Jamaican side of my family. Um, my grandmother and my father are really terrible about it. Um, you know, like, and it's so weird. Like my grandmother, if she sees a fat person eating, she's like, like disgusted. Like she, it's, it's revolting to her. And I'm like, they're eating food. Like, what is, like, what is wrong with you? If they were eating a salad, you'd still have an attitude. Like it's, it's weird. It's, it's very old school. Um, I'm not sure where exactly it comes from. Um, my dad is what my dad is like six feet tall, skinny as a bag of bones. Like he's always been thin as hell. Um, my grandmother, she is also incredibly tall. My grandmother's like five foot ten, five foot eleven. Um, and she's now, I mean, as she's gotten older, she hasn't she hasn't always been like a skinny chick, but I've seen old school photos of my grandmother like that. She was a baddie, you know what I'm saying? Just long legs and skinny everywhere. Uh my mother is uh, my mother is, is is has always been a heavier woman. You know, she she was she was definitely thick, um, and then got pregnant with me and then got fat, you know, it is, and it is kind of is what it is. And like my dad, like would make kind of jokes and stuff about my mother. And it would, it would always bother me. And I'm always like, I would always get like pissed off with him of like, leave her alone. Like, what do you, and you're still screwing her. So <laughs> what's the, like, what's the problem? What's the difference? Um, and what's so crazy is, I mean, up until I was about maybe 27 years old, I was always the skinny short person, right? So I I think from up in, like, wait, maybe senior year of college, uh, senior at Spelman, I maybe weighed 110 pounds, maybe. I am tiptoeing at 156 these days. And, you know, I haven't seen my grandmother in a few years, COVID, um, haven't seen my grandmother in a few years. And I remember I'd sent her some pictures on like WhatsApp and she's like, I wouldn't even recognize you. Look how big you've gotten and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. At 34, I'm still not the size of a 19 year old Graham. Like, please get off my behind. Um, and so it's been an unlearning of that for me, uh, of being willing to accept my body in all of its forms because I'm also just kind of like what I don't need to happen is I get pregnant and here I am with an eating disorder because I'm terrified of getting of getting fat or staying fat because of a baby you know because I'm bringing life into this world like that it's it's very crazy and it's I'm so glad to see the conversation around fatness that is is changing. Um, and I think it's it's absolutely necessary and I think it's it's powerful. Um, and it honestly, it makes me even more excited to talk to our guest today. Deshaun L. Harrison is a fat, black, non-binary abolitionist and community organizer based in Atlanta, Georgia. Their new book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness and Anti-Blackness, explores the intersections of blackness, gender, fatness, health, and the violence of policing. Deshaun has been featured in The Fader, 
Teen Vogue, and BuzzFeed, just to name a few. Deshaun, welcome to Dear Culture. We're so happy to have you, to have your brilliant expertise on a very important topic. So we're happy to have you. And shout out to Deshaun. Uh, shout out to Deshaun, you know, Morehouse grad. So it's a Spellhouse episode, okay? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're happy to have you. And so first, I want to set the tone with like education, because when I was a kid, um, you know, I'm kind of like the, the PC police. Like I try to use words carefully and to be mindful of how I use words. And when I was younger, the term fat was pejorative. And today it's been reclaimed um, to destigmatize the word. Could you uh, share with us a bit of that history of that word um, and why it's being used to why it's being reclaimed? Yeah. So, I mean, for you, I think you're right. You know, like for a long time, um, the word fat has often been used as a slur, as something that's been intended to harm folks. And mm -hmm. I think that we've arrived to a place, you know, fat studies is is about two decades old. Um, and, and in that, which is, you know, very young in terms of thinking about academic disciplines. Um, but within that time frame, a lot of writers, a lot of fat scholars, fat activists, fat thinkers have done a brilliant job of sort of um, redefining what fatness is and 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 what it looks like um, in very similar ways to you know the reclamation of the word queer, right? Um, and and the way that that has been transformed academically and socially into something that we oftentimes use now without without any pushback, besides from you know elders who have been antagonized by that word themselves um and so i think that yeah that this has been like a a short time coming but a long time coming as well um that has sort of shifted the way that we think about fatness or we're in the process of trying to shift the way that we think about fatness and i think that it's also important to consider right that because it is so new there are still people who will understand this word to simply be you know, um, a slur or harmful and having to work around that is, is something that I think is very important for us all to consider when talking about fatness in general. So I oftentimes like to think of it as, you know, talking about a group of people in terms of population as fat, but being clear or, or getting clear clarity on what an individual wants to be referred to as when talking to them directly. Okay, so, I mean, the title of your book, right, is Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. And within that book, you write about how fat black bodies are essentially hyper-policed by the state and by society in general. Um, I know my, my grandmother, especially, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, fat black bodies are passed over for housing, jobs, they're discriminated against, they're abused, they're traumatized. How is being fat, well, how is being anti-fat also being anti-black. Let's break that down for the audience. Yes. So there is a brilliant scholar by the name of Sabrina Strings. Um, she wrote a book titled Fear in the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And in that book, she, I love this book because she came out the gate swinging. Like in the introduction, she was like, listen, this is what it is. This is what it ain't. And, and this is what the book's going to be about. Um, and so in that, in that intro, she talks about sort of how anti-fatness becomes a coherent ideology and the mapping of, of anti-fatness on, 
onto the world, right? So um, what that looks like essentially is during the 19th century, you know, during the Enlightenment era and the in the the middle of the transatlantic slave trade, white Europeans, white Americans are are seeing the way that fatness looks on black bodies and are like, I actually don't think that I want to look like this, right? Like this is this now is something that that has gone from a a, a symbol of uh, wealth and 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 respect to something that's now sinful and grotesque and unrighteous, right? So in this moment where Protestant Christianity is being spread through colonialism, through anti-blackness and through anti-black violence like slavery, you get the coherence of an ideology that we now refer to as fat phobia or anti-fatness. And so that is like the, the origin of how these two things even come together. It's like, there is no, the very foundation of an anti-fat ideology is anti-blackness, right? It's this, this, this desire to not um, look like, or, or, or resemble in any way black people, which is what we've always been, been read as. Uh, And so from that moment, then you you get, you know, like more um, more structures built in place that sort of determine the ways that fat folks are going to be engaged. But disproportionately, those engagements are harming black folks. Right. So like the medical industry, like the police system and and policing in general, carcerality in general, um, you know, like even things that that may seem trivial to some folks, like the fashion industry, right? Like all these industries that are designed in so many ways to to keep out or to harm fat black folks um, become central to the maintenance of anti fatness as anti blackness. Deshaun is breaking this down. Okay, <laughs> teach, teach me, teach the children, Chad. Wow, um, you you said that so powerfully. Um, and in your book, you also have addressed uh, beauty standards and desirability politics. Um, and I want to have you speak to what that means for Black people specifically, because I feel like it hits different for us and how those two things shape our lives. I love talking about desirability politics and desire capital with like within black spaces, right? Because I think it gives us the room to understand that desire is, is very discursive, right? So of course there's like a standard that's set by Europeans, right? And so, you know, whoever is, is closest in proximity to that standard is, is, is who has a specific level of desire capital and within black community, right? Like we also know that there's, there are particular there's a particular standard that may not necessarily resemble european standards by our taste right but that still is in closer proximity to to a, a european standard or 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 a, a standard of beauty predicated on whiteness than um than what you would find in in non-black communities so what that looks like in so many ways right is is thin folks is oftentimes cis people right is oftentimes light-skinned people is oftentimes men right um and and that can have like a a variety of looks and ranges but you know it's also you know your your non-disabled folks right so like like this this sort of structure that's been designed around maintaining the anti-black violence that comes along with colonialism that comes along with the very structuring 
um, of beauty as a as a standard um, of beauty as a structure. And so in the book, I'm really asking the reader in so many ways to think beyond, you know, beauty as something that they want for themselves. I think that we're we're oftentimes taught that, you know, we have to desire beauty, that we have to desire to to become beautiful with the capital B. Um, and don't think of it as a form of structural violence. But within inside of and outside of, of a black cultural context, there are particular people who will always be pushed out of any sort of inkling of desire on a on a on a mass scale because of their of their lack of proximity to whiteness or to whiteness as standards. Um, and I think that for as, as long as we forget that, for as long as we don't acknowledge that, we continue to to leave folks out of 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 the conversation, but also leave folks out of the ability to be affirmed, even within their own community. Um, and so I think like, you know, one of the examples I always use uh, when talking about this to make it make the most sense is in in, you know, like queer spaces, oftentimes a lot of folks who are disregarded are, are fat folks, right? So then there, there's been spaces created um, like, you know, your your bear communities or, or things like that. And I'm, I'm using this very, very loosely because that's also very white in so many ways. But um, <laughs> but you have like this, like this, this space created that's that's intended to be for fat folks, but even within that space, the folks who are prioritized are those who are chasers, who are typically thin, or folks who, who have their fatness proportioned in a very particular way, right? Uh, and, and that is a glaring example of the ways that anti-fatness shows up even in spaces that are intended to be liberatory or safe spaces for other people. Um, or for people who are oftentimes left out. And I think that that, uh, you know, is, is just another, or that is an example that I think can be applied to black community, right? You know, we, we, we're not necessarily out here searching for the, the thin, white, blue-eyed, you know, blonde-haired person. And a lot of us would much rather be with that person than to be with a dark-skinned, fat trans person, right? Or a dark-skinned, fat um, disabled person, right? Um, and we we witness that all the time in our community. So I think that that's just you know a, a small bit of how desire capital and desirability shows up in our spaces. So okay, so you were kind of you were tiptoeing on something. I was like, I hope he don't talk about it yet because I, I have a question. Uh, so you penned an essay called "The Conflict Between Thick and Fat," right? Now let let's let's talk about it, right? Because you're absolutely right, especially in the black community. Like, no, you don't want to be, so no one, well, I won't say no one, but a lot of us don't really, and especially the IG model standard, you know, we don't have desirability to be, you know, thin and, and here's, there's, there's, there's no titties, there's no, you know, behind, <laughs> like, we're not trying to look, we're not trying to look like, like the white like the white girls, you know, like the, the typical white girls, not the Kim Kardashian white girls. We're not trying to look like them. Uh, but we're also not trying to look like a Lizzo, right? Uh, so you're look, you're trying to, you're going for the Megan the Stallion. You're going for the thick uh, <laughs> and not, and not the fat. And 
um, even in your essay, you compared like the likes of Winston Duke, uh, you know, uh, good old, uh, shout out to Chadwick Boseman, um, <laughs> shout out to Black Panther, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Mbaku, who was celebrated for his thickness versus the bodies of men like Mike Brown and Eric Garner, who's, you know, their size essentially contributed to their deaths. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of these things. And I guess, so you talk about like people using thick as a compliment while also denying fat people their humanity, like even fat people being invisible within the Me Too movement. Can you explain a little bit more about like why you take such an issue with the way the word thick, quote unquote, is used? Yeah. Um, well, for one, thank you for that beautiful synopsis of the essay. <laughs> um, I think you did a better job than I would have been able to with trying to summarize it. Um, and yeah, so I take I I really do take big issue with this word because it has evolved into something that to me is is representational of the the more broad body positive movement, right? Where thin folks and and their bodies are are prioritized in a space or in a movement that is supposed to be centered around fat people, right? Um, and and it becomes a, a a space or a time or a moment to offer, uh, you know, affirmations and and ego boosts to thin people uh, instead of acknowledging the the ways that fat folks are subjugated within our society. Uh, and so, yeah, I I take like really big issue with the word thick because and and it's all of its variations because of the way that it sort of takes away from from any sort of conversation around fat liberation but also because of exactly what what you just named in that synopsis right is it's the difference between who who lives and who dies right it's the difference between who gets to to be able to um to to build any sort of like a, of a career that they're able to live off of able to eat off of versus who's murdered because of their size right so you know like you said you're 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 the ig models the, the influencers are wanting to be you know the this this particular size that allows them to um to to eat right to make money off of their off of their bodies and they cannot do that if if they look like a Lizzo, if they look like you know um, a, a fatter person who 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 they are not able to locate desire on. Um, and I think that you know that is that's why we we get so much conversation about Lizzo because people can't imagine that there's this that there's a world where a fat black woman can make money off of her body right where she can she can be very clearly fat very happily fat and and engaged in talking about her her body um and also be able to live and i think that that is that's something that you know um is is just a really big issue for me with regards to um with regards to thick versus fat and and in that essay i also talk about you know and the moment that I wrote it, this was a really big time for Rihanna. She was like looking, looking thicker. Beyonce had gotten thicker. Nicki Minaj's body has has had grown. But in that same time frame, Roxane Gay, who was one of the most prominent um, fat fat writers out there, had just written written an essay about how she, um, you know, had to undergo. Um, surgery to lose weight right and 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 the 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 struggle that came along with that 
and the way that she was antagonized both by people in the fat liberation movement and folks outside of it because of, of the fact that she was just this really tall, really fat black woman. Um, and, and, you know, I use those people as examples because they're also light skinned just as she is. So it's not like this is just like a, a difference in, in talking about colorism and things like that. These are light skinned black women who, who have very different bodies, but are being positioned in a very particular way because of the ways that their fatness is proportioned. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's just like a very important thing for me to talk about because there is something so essential about acknowledging the ways that fat folks are removed from care in a very particular way, are removed from desire in a very particular way. And as I wrote in the essay, the way that there's a, a specific, um, economy or a specific capital applied to people who are red as thick that's not applied to people who are blatantly fat, fat right who cannot be named as anything but that um and and it it becomes the the sort of basis for how people are engaged socially economically uh, in, in dating spaces etc right so it's just it's a really harmful thing that i think um you know if people aren't openly critiquing can easily become another form of this, this mainstream body positive movement. You know, Deshaun, so much of a lot of this conversation is about being a mindfulness. And, and even as you were speaking about uh, the queer community and the proximity to desirability and, and, uh, and the violence of black bodies. Um, and you talk a lot about dismantling um, the ways in which we, we center things about, how we identify our bodies, our sexuality, our gender. Um, and that disruption part, you know, is important. And I, I've often tried, you know, in recent history, trying to like re reimagine the way I see myself in the world and the things that have been taught about me, the messaging. Um, how do we get to that place? What, what does disruption look like, you think? How would you describe that? And, and separately also from your perspective, what is our society and culture's issue with fatness? Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm, I think I'm going to do this, the second question first. Um, I, I think that that's a really like multi-layered question with a very multi-layered answer, right? I think if, if I was to wrap it up into uh, like one sentence, I would say that our society's issue with fatness is blackness, right? Our, which is to say that the issue with the issue that people have with fatness is its relationship to blackness and the way that the ways that they've been conjoined through colonialism, anti-blackness and slavery, right through the spreading, spreading of Protestant Christianity. Um, and I think that that's a very complicated way of saying that our society is predicated on it's, it's been built around making sure that that black folks are are continually subjugated through the through the ways that our bodies are read right through our skin color through the size of our bodies through the shape of our bodies etc and this is no different so when yeah I, I think i would wrap it up by just saying that the issue that we have with fatness is blackness and that's true too even in black space i think that you know a lot of times we like to think that because we're all black, that there's that there's no no anti-blackness here, right? But 
we live in a world where <laughs> 500 plus plus years of 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 slavery are are part of who we are right like that's that's part of what 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 makes us who we are and what we are and how we move in the world so we've internalized so much about the things that that have been ingrained in us um through through the spread of of of, of slavery and so that is to say that anti-blackness shows up in our spaces too. There's no way to, to divorce our spaces from anti-blackness because anti-blackness is a global structure. And so, yeah, I, I think that our issue with fatness is blackness. And until we reckon with that, um, there is no, there is no way of, of, of destroying that concept. And so to, to get to the first question, um, one of my favorite theorists is Joy James, Dr. Joy James. She is, I think, brilliant. Actually, I don't know if she's a doctor or not, so I shouldn't call her doctor. But <laughs> Joy, Joy James, she's, she's absolutely brilliant. She's a brilliant writer and, and scholar and thinker and um, organizer. And she, one of her projects is, or her, her project is the captive maternal. Uh, and, and in a talk that she did before, she talks about the captive maternal and and in general like she she answers in a way this question around the destruction of the world right and what what that means what it means to 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 organize around these things to to destroy these concepts to to you know undo these structures and what she says that has just stuck with me is that it's an impossible task, but it's one that we're worthy of. And that sticks with me because I think that the idea of, of destroying the world is such an impossible task, right? It's, it's an impossible task, but only insofar as the world has, or only insofar as impossibility is, you know, only something that's that's legible to the human mind. And when talking about humanness, humanity in terms of, you know, like um, social, like in, in terms of soci sociological terms, right, or like philosophical terms, um, that means white people, right? So it's, it's about what white people can and cannot understand, what white people make impractical or, or make practical, right? And so... Another one of my like really um, favorite theorists is Zakia Mon Jackson, who wrote Becoming Human. And she said in an interview before that, you know, in terms of building new worlds, she she is invested in and this is not her exact words, but she's invested in um, doing the impractical. Right. Continuing to live in the impractical. And so what I get from these two quotes is that these concepts become hard for us to conceptualize because they're unintelligible. Um, and, and because they're unintelligible or because they are, you know, um, things that, that, that don't make sense to white people, then they become labeled as impractical. But I think that there is, that there is an impractical way of undoing the world of, of destroying the world. Right. And, and, and I think that, that there is something that there is a place beyond this moment that we're that we're able to inhabit that makes for a safer environment for all of us. 
Um, and I think that that will always be labeled as impractical. That will always be labeled as, as impossible. That will always be labeled as, as something that cannot be done. And I'm, I'm invested in that space. I'm invested in the impracticality of the destruction of the world. I'm invested in the impossibility of the destruction of the world. Um, and I'm invested in it because I do see it as something that we're worthy of, something that we, that we deserve to take on a, 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 a task that we deserve as as black folks as subjugated beings to work towards um and so i think that you know that looks like the organizing that looks like the writing that looks like um you know the the engaging in political education it looks like all the things that we've continued to do and i think it looks like more um but what that more looks like i think is 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 determined by by all of us together and and not by an individual so that is my long-winded answer um, and in response to that, just say that I think that there is something important and, and impractical and impossible about the destruction of the world, and it's something that we must take on. So in your book, you also write about how anti-fatness is more than just hurtful language, right? And it can have some serious, harmful impacts. Sometimes it can even be fatal. Um, and I know even in your essay, not all fat black boys know how to eat, uh, you write, quote, fat black boys are failed by nutritionists, failed by a society that doesn't see us as deserving of treatment and therapy. Uh, you know, there's even the idea of, I mean, climate change disasters can leave fat and disabled folks even more vulnerable to harm. Um, shout out to Imani Barberin, who a fat uh, black disabled woman who she educated me. OK, like <laughs> Imani, I, I was able to interview Imani on IG Live and she was phenomenal and, and so educational. And I think, you know, this these works that you also have been putting through are in that same vein. Uh, I guess what are. What are some of the the other consequences of anti-fatness that we may not even be aware of? And, you know, because I think we as a culture, we practice anti-fatness sometimes without even recognizing it. Right. So what do you think are some of the other consequences of that that we need to be very mindful of to make sure that we're not perpetuating? Yeah. So I love that you brought up um, the not all fat black boys know how to eat um, piece that I wrote because um that one was a really important piece for me to write as as someone who was raised and socialized as a fat boy who now is a non-binary trans person who uses they them pronouns right like it's a it's a very different um world but also it was something that i felt was was important for me to write about especially thinking through um ksa layman's work through um heavy in American memoir that he wrote on himself where he talks about his own eating disorder. Right. And, and how hard it is to be a fat black boy, um, and, and be diagnosed with an eating disorder, right? Like no one, because eating disorders are oftentimes associated with thin, fragile white girls, right? Black girls, black boys, black people oftentimes are completely disregarded for, um, or, or completely left out of the thought that we could have an eating disorder. Um, and so I wanted to write about that because I think that that's one of the biggest ways that, that we sort of miss the mark, right? Where we, we perpetuate anti-fatness by not acknowledging that fat people also can have eating disorders, one, and that oftentimes 
these eating disorders are developed through the ways that we treat fat children, right? By punishing them for their bodies, by antagonizing them for their bodies, by antagonizing them for for wanting to be children and 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 eat or or play or whatever, right? And now we make their their movement about punishing them, or we make their 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 foods about punishing them. We make their their body something that's bad, that's harmful, that's wrong, that's disgusting, right? And then they develop these eating disorders that are not diagnosed as such because they're black and they're fat. Um, and so that was like you know uh, an important piece for me. But then yes, the other piece that you that you mentioned that I wrote that I think will be essential in the years to come. Um, because it already has been essential in, in just these past few years, is that when we're experiencing major, you know, disasters and crises, fat black folks are oftentimes the ones who are left behind. The piece, that essay that I wrote about was was centered around Katrina and what happened in Louisiana, where doctors quite literally euthanized fat black patients as opposed to making sure that they were saved in the end, right? And and folks who who were, um, you know, first responders named that had they known that there were patients that were left inside the building, they would have found a way to help. But doctors didn't make that that a known fact, right? It was these are the fattest patients who also happen to be the black patients. And we have zero interest in in saving them, right? Our only option in this moment is putting them down. Um, and then that happened again in New York just a few years back after, I forget the name of the storm, but there was a storm that hit New York. And in that moment, doctors refused to save more fat black patients. And it's like, as we continue to live through crises where capitalism makes our resources scarce, right? So so we have plenty of resources to be able to, to save everyone and we don't have access to those resources because of capitalism. For as long as that is the case, a lot of people will, a lot of fat black people will continue to be at, you know, the heart of the violence of, of, of these moments because triage calls for you to save the ones who you feel have the, the, the best way of, um, of, of surviving. Right. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes is not going to be the fat black person in, in other people's minds. Um, and so, you know, I wrote that to think about what that looks like in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, right? Like who gets to be put on ventilators and who doesn't, who gets mm. access to being intubated and who doesn't, right? Like mm-hmm. when 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 all else fails, and we know that throughout this throughout this pandemic, there have been waves of like huge moments where hospitals were just completely overwhelmed, didn't have access to to certain resources. It makes me wonder who actually died from COVID and who died from neglect, right? Mm. Like who died from <laughs> COVID and who died because they were just too fat and black for care. Um, and, I, and I think that we'll have more answers to that in the years to come. But as we start to experience a, more of a of a climate change in in the world, we're going to experience more disaster crisis. And and as we experience more of those, I have to continue to ask who who gets to who gets to live and who gets to die, um, because that's the question that doctors are always asking, and the answer always ends up being fat black people as the ones who die. Um, so, so that's just like two glaring examples to me of, of things that, that I think are things that we do without even really necessarily knowing that, that it's 
fat phobic or anti-fat violence. Um, but you know, even like we talked about earlier, like things in terms of like our dating practices, things in terms of how we engage our families, things in terms of how we engage our friends, how we engage ourselves. There's just so many, so many moments where we are actively, um, actively, you know, engaging anti-fat logics without necessarily knowing that that's true. Deshaun, you're giving us so much to sit with. Uh, I have to, I, I'm trying to sit with it, with it, but, um, and, yeah. and we, we really have been enjoying this conversation and thank you so much for all of this. Um, this is the last question for you and I want to end on a positive note. Um, in, in a sentence or two, what does a world without anti-fatness and anti-blackness, what does that look like? What does that world look like to you? I think it doesn't look like a world at all. Mm. That's my answer. Mm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Make sure he, he, he left it to, to, to think on this. It's like a little prompt to, to think on and meditate I'm, on. I'm not saying anything else. <laughs> it looks like a it looks like no world at all. Mm. They 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 was like, hold on now. <laughs> they was like. They said, "Let me, let me, let me sprinkle a little something on you. Let you sit, let you sit with it." Oh my goodness! Well, Deshaun, thank you so very much. This has been an amazing conversation. I, I mean, I expected nothing less from my Morehouse sibling. Uh, <laughs> so, Deshaun's book is called "Belly of the Beast: The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness," and you can find it wherever books are sold. If you can find it from a black, uh, you know, uh, uh, like some black-owned st- shops and such. Uh, uh, and to read some of Deshaun's other work on the intersections of fatness, blackness, and disability, visit their website at www.deshaunharrison.com. That's D-A-S-H-A-U-N Harrison.com. We want to remind our listeners to support your local black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Black Girl Sunscreen. Tired of white residue left behind by other SPF skincare products, Shantae Lundy decided to create Black Girl Sunscreen in 2016. Lundy said her goal is to start a global conversation around sun safety to educate and protect melanin worldwide. Black Girl Sunscreen is specially formulated for melanated skin and doesn't leave behind white residue and products go as high as SPF 45. You can find Black Girl Sunscreen on the shelves in Target and Ulta or visit their website blackgirlsunscreen.com to learn more and order yours. The Grill has published a list of 50 plus black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions and compliments. We love those to podcast at the Grill dot com. The Dear Culture Podcast is brought to you by The Griot 